You are listening to the Post Growth Australia podcast, the one podcast where size don't matter and where better is better than bigger. Hello, everyone. This is another edition of the Post Growth Australia podcast, and I'm Mark, your co host, and joined with me here is your regular host, Michael. How's it going, Michael? Good, thank you. How are you? I'm pretty good, thanks. Yeah, today is going to be an interesting one because we are going to have a conversation between ourselves and we're not going to have a guest on. So you could see it as being a bit indulgent, but what do you reckon? Well, you know what? All of the podcasts, a lot of them that inspire me, such as Crazy Town, um, involve three co-hosts who speak together on an issue every episode so it's quite common it is quite common yes my other counter argument for self-indulgence is that uh, the mainstream media tends to enjoy ignoring us <laughs> so that's you know true. we're kind of that's true. where all we've got exactly and to be fair um you have written a very co-written a very important briefing note which we'll be discussing today on the population side of the housing crisis and the the issue of the fact it being as as much of a demand issue as it is of a supply issue, if not more so, and we'll be talking about that. My background, of course, is in town planning, so it's a good opportunity for us to engage in a more generalised conversation about the housing crisis and how we got into this mess and how we might be able to get out of this mess and crucially why post-growth is so fundamentally important as it always is in these things. And of course, because we are going down that path of us talking to each other about various things, we may as well use this opportunity to play our music. What do you reckon? <laughs> yeah, down the slippery slope already, you know, fall right down the abyss, that's what I say. We don't often get our music played, so we may as well play one of your songs or one of my songs. And it's who you know. <laughs> it's who you know, it's who you know. So and we know each other. So we know each you, other, you know. yeah. But after this episode, we'll be pretty much back to interviewing guests. But um, Back to normal. Back to normal. Mm. But I think that we have uh, quite a lot to talk about in this episode to keep everyone interested. I think there's enough. And we're also going to be talking about your recent escapades into Fringe and comedy. So that will be a very interesting uh, conversation and it was with mixed results but we'll talk about that uh, later but thank you yeah looking forward to that. So we'll start you off with a little two minute number this is a song that I wrote called Ice and it's a good segue into our conversation because it's not a cheerful song as such it's a song about urban dystopia living in the suburbs lack of services the depression that comes with it when you have bad planning basically and it's called ice and we'll be right back after that direction of a life Was it gonna take poor Deborah there? Now there's trouble with the law Her boyfriend's on the floor Saying Whoa Everything's okay Crawled away from loneliness and made it something similar to despair Thank you. 
happy in the sprawl It's a monochrome world, she says Black by urban malls There's no trouble anymore Just a mind that's born The Debris And made it something similar to despair And the police and the planners and the teachers helped to take her there Crawled away from loneliness And made it something similar to despair Welcome back to the Post Growth Australia podcast, or PGAP. I am Mark, and this is Michael. Yep, we're still our names. We're yeah. still our names. <laughs> we have not changed our names in the time that we've been away. Now, Michael, um, that song, Ice, was inspired by um, bad urban planning, urban sprawl that's been going on. It's a great song, by the way. Oh, thank you. Well, my gonna... favourite of yours. And we're going to play my, one of my favourites of yours towards the end, um, called Dear Caught in the Headlights, and I'm looking forward to talking to you about that a bit as well. I'm just loving the equity in this episode. Oh, it's so, it's so equitable, isn't it? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so this briefing note that you have co-written with Jane O'Sullivan is called The Housing Crisis is a Population Growth Crisis, and this is part of your role as the communications Officer for Sustainable Population Australia. Could you tell me, and it, by the way, it's an amazing piece of writing and we'll put a link to this in the, in the show notes, but could you tell me why you felt it was necessary to, to write this paper and what, what processes led you to, to going about this? Yeah, I suppose it's two reasons. Firstly, I mean, the situation we're in is dire. <laughs> 640,000 Australians are currently under um, acute housing stress and the rate of homelessness is double the rate of population growth. So that's one reason. This, this is the existing backdrop to where we are at this moment and why it's a housing crisis. Secondly, last year at the Jobs and Skills Summit, it was very clear that the recently elected Labor government uh, was bowing down to the interests of big business and returning to big Australia for big business. Now, this comes after a couple of years of COVID lockdowns and, you know, the lockdowns were terrible for many reasons, but... It was, I suppose, showcased that in scenarios of lower population growth that the gap between real wages and the cost of living was able to equalise and that we could have more of a supportive government using, you know, MMT like strategies to support people in rental accommodation or support people if they lost work. And um, whilst in opposition during this time, Anthony Albanese said, we need a mature debate on population. 
since being elected, we haven't had that mature debate. The Labor government are dedicated to one of, of our largest population growth programs, policies uh, in recent history, mm. um, mm. kind of exceeding any of the targets from the, you know, Howard, Rudd, um, Abbott, Morrison years. I guess when you look at the legacy of what's been written academically or the leading responses to the housing crisis, it's always or predominantly painted as a supply crisis yeah. that can be solved not through any major structural change or not by changing the demand or they're even saying we can have almost infinite demand mm. um, so long as we make changes to the supply of the housing stock mm. that can just be easily increased. And no one has really done a quasi-academic paper on the demand side of the equation. That's so you're pretty much the first to have written about this. As far as I'm aware, I yeah. don't want to say definitively sure. that myself and Jane are definitely the first, but we're the first that we know of that has written explicitly on the demand side on this. It's interesting, isn't it, how biased the, the narrative is to actually have a nuanced and in-depth conversation about the housing crisis. You cannot ignore the fact that we are increasing our population by, I think it's the equivalent of a whole new Adelaide every two years or something like that, or three years. You know, before we were saying we're increasing by the rate of a new Canberra every year. Yeah. <laughs> and um, these days, uh, our government's committed to a new Adelaide every couple of years. It's just, it's just <laughs> you, know. <laughs> you know. You can't ignore that when you're talking about a housing crisis. When so many of us are in rental stress and when so many of us are becoming homeless and when so many of us are dedicating so much of our incomes into substandard housing, how is adding another Adelaide's worth of people every two years during this critical time in Australia's housing security. And let's not forget that housing is a base need in Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Mm. It's not a commodity that can just infinitely grow in price and mm. shut everyone out of the market. Yeah. It's actually critical to our survival. Yeah, yeah. And sure, the Labor government have committed to about 30,000 new social housing mm. homes, although a it's lot of... It's pretty tokenistic, though, isn't it? It's pretty tokenistic, oh. considering the fact that it's 30,000 people against 700,000. On top of all the people who are already struggling On to top, find a place to live. Well, there's already a shortfall in social Massive housing, shortfall. so that's just going to be a drop in the ocean. It's that a shortfall in housing completely. It's interesting because I have noticed a couple of articles in the mainstream that have started to, to bring this issue up a bit. There was an article in the ABC by an Ian Vernder, and we'll put a link in the show notes, 
And he rightfully points out, he says, it takes far longer to build a house or an apartment block than to process an arrival application. And as for the affordable housing, the simple arithmetic suggests that this may be an unattainable pipe dream. Also, Crispin Hull from the um, wrote a very good article, um, I think it was in the Canberra Times, and there will also be a, a link to that in the show notes, where he says that you know every skilled construction worker brought in requires health, education, infrastructure, and so on. And every health worker brought in creates extra demand of construction workers. The vicious cycle of labour shortages goes on and on. So it's good to see that these issues are starting to make their way a little bit into the mainstream media, but I still notice that the main narrative is very much, and even in The Guardian, uh, the so-called progressive Guardian, that if we Hmm. simply keep increasing supply, it doesn't matter how big the demand is. And that has a huge number of environmental implications as well, of course. Yeah, massive. It just seems to be crazy the lack of joining the dots like these same progressive publications will almost be crying tears over the next remnant bushland Mm. or farmland that's going to be built over for suburban sprawl and how Mm. many coastal emus how many Mm. koalas black Mm. carnaby cockatoos in Mm. wa where we're both living at the moment and how terrible that is, but on the same token, mm. the approach to the crisis is simply building more. Mm. And how can you make that disconnect? From degrowth land, we all know that we're facing acute resource shortages. So many of the building materials, water that needs to go into making concrete, they're all becoming scarcer and scarcer. So, you know, at some point we're going to reach the limits to growth. I know that in the discussion paper that um, Jane and I said, okay, the price of housing in the outer suburbs is perhaps not changing that much, but it keeps going outward and outward. And so people are longer and longer distances from amenities. So the cost of transport, it becomes a lot more unviable when you're in an increasingly sprawling satellite suburb so the inner suburbs are becoming more desirable yes um, indeed, yeah. which is really cranking up the price of housing in the inner suburbs and so what happens is a rapid move towards densification yes but those apartments costs the same as the freestanding private house would have 10 or 15 years ago. Yes. Because the price of housing is just that astronomical. All you're getting is an exponential speculation frenzy. Yes. For lower and lower lower private amenities in desirable suburbs no one benefits from this apart from the investors who own capital who are getting richer and richer via the various tax breaks that we also outline in the paper and meanwhile we're getting both sprawl and densification well that's right when i was uh, studying town playing in in adelaide 20 years ago now which is a bit scary There was a massive drive to densify. And just recently, Adelaide has released huge amounts of land on the urban fringe for sprawl. 
again because under the current population stroke development based economic system that we are in we are never going to keep up with the demand without sprawling and then there's the whole issue of course of the environmental impacts of densification it's very easy to say oh well we will densify but quite often densification means pulling down decent robust housing that could otherwise be retrofitted with all of the embodied carbon within it and also of course a lot of houses that are pulled down for densification um, are often share houses so people in lower incomes are often forced out of these areas. But just going back to what you were saying before, I think one of the biggest lies that's perpetuated by the media, and, and very few people are actually critiquing this, is this idea that somehow by increasing supply, we're going to bring house prices down. Let's be frank about this. We are increasing supply in order to cater for a growing population. We're not increasing supply to bring house prices down so that more people can afford to buy houses. So many Australians now have investment properties, including just about every politician, by the way. The very last thing that the powers that be want is for house prices to fall in value. It is crucial that they don't end up in negative equity with their investment properties. So they'll tell us on one hand, oh, we need to increase supply, we need to increase supply, and then they will grow the population to counteract that in order to prop up the overinflated housing market. That really needs to be pointed out. What the briefing note does as well, it spells out that there's two conversations happening concurrently. Yeah. There are our mainstream politicians funded by property developers yeah. who cry crocodile tears and say, oh, but population growth is so inevitable. Yeah. Inevitable. There's just nothing we can do about it. Except when they could do something about it during the lockdowns. And now it's a, they have, we have to catch up on this arbitrary figure yeah. that we had before that, that we decided was necessary, which is quite a classic gaslighting. Absolute gaslighting. And let's also be frank. That under the current system, there is no end point for population growth. There is nothing written into our system whereby Australia's population can eventually stabilise. We are currently on a Ponzi trajectory where we have to keep densifying indefinitely. And we are going on a trajectory at such a rate of population growth that we will continue to sprawl as well. And because there is no end point to our population growth, any densification will only delay sprawl. It will only delay it slightly. And even then, I would even suggest that that's not necessarily true either, because under the current system, densification happens as a result of upzoning land. When you upzone land, you increase the value of the land and you price poorer people out and you generally price them to the outer suburbs so that I could even say there's potentially a relationship between densification and urban sprawl how they kind of feed each other I was talking earlier about how a lot of people who live in share houses live in inner suburbs because they can afford to live in a share house those people are not going to be able to afford to live in the new units or townhouses that are built to replace that share house they will be forced further out i know that the population issue is a difficult one it's, it's a very emotive issue but 
If we don't talk about it, the problem isn't going to go away. Isn't it better to talk about the issues caused by population growth and then look at how we can tackle it in a way that isn't racist? If we don't talk about population, one of the things that we do is we give a free ride to the big end of town who benefit from population growth. In the briefing note, we said although the Australian public is told that population growth is inevitable and it's problematic if you talk about it, it's openly understood in the property and real estate industry that population growth is a deliberate tool and it's desirable. When property developers discuss Australian property overseas, they make it quite pointed to promise that Australia's population is going to grow and there'll be overseas return on Australian property. <laughs> this is what's happening. And I guess what we we're trying to also say in the paper, and as an extension of what we've always been trying to say at Sustainable Population Australia, is just because it's inconvenient to talk about it doesn't mean that it's not having an impact. And in the case of the housing crisis, as we said, perhaps 20 years ago, the housing price problem could perhaps have just been mitigated with a levelling or slower population growth. But we're at the stage now, particularly after John Howard introduced the capital gains concessions, negative gearing, which incited a speculative housing frenzy, that we need a shift in population policies towards the stabilising of our population in conjunction with enormous changes in our taxation and economic system so we can transition away from a speculative economy to at least a productive co economy if not a degrowth productive economy. Yeah exactly and I think that's the emphasis. The emphasis is we need to create a system that doesn't demand population growth in order to prop up a Ponzi GDP driven system that is based around real estate and the demands of the property council and property developers like Harry Triggerbuff who have John Howard and people like that go to his birthday party. What we need is we need a more compassionate approach to population in this country which understands that we need to support people, refugees, family reunions, but it's not about using migrants as numbers to grow GDP. It is about understanding the fact that our population may fluctuate, it may go up slightly, it may go down, it may level off, depending on what direction the world goes in, and to actually plan around that. But we need to change our planning system massively anyway. What do you think? What I will say is from a degrowth perspective, and looking at the current system that we're in, most of us, to a larger or lesser extent, are bit players in this. 40% of Australians uh, are stuck in a rental rut, including myself for so many years. An equal number, I would say, are benefiting to some degree 
from housing speculation. So I think for a society to mature, people need to have a long, hard look at themselves, particularly those who own capital and are able to claim this back on tax and say, what would happen if the government could guarantee a universal basic income, a job guarantee, whatever, I would stop making millions of dollars. Mm. I'd make thousands of dollars instead. But on the flip side, no one would be homeless and no one would be hungry or out of work. Mm, Is, Is that something that's votable? And if that is not votable, well, it's not just a problem of politicians. It's not just a problem of property developers. It's a collective problem that we're all interconnected with and all share. Well, it's crucial that we transition to some form of post-growth society anyway. We cannot continue, as you always say, to have infinite growth on a finite planet. And the housing crisis is a case study of that, of the social and environmental impacts of a mindset where we have to keep growing and expanding indefinitely. And the more we grow and expand indefinitely, the more our economy becomes reliant upon it, the harder it is to break away from it. And in Australia, due to a lack of innovation, we rely upon growing numbers. We grow numbers because Australia has the biggest, private debt in the world and we have a cost of living crisis so as individuals we're not consuming as much as our system would like so naturally they want to increase the number of people that will increase the housing crisis so it's taking a mindset towards a steady state where it's okay for populations to stabilize or even decline and the focus needs to be on mutual aid where all countries support each other to lift people out of poverty, to create low carbon communities, a steady state system. And then with that in place, we ensure that we provide support and homes for refugees that may become displaced as the world continues to burn and to provide support for family reunions. There are so many people who are wanting to come to Australia to be with their families. And we need to prioritise those people because what's really important is that families are as close together as possible, especially as we need to reduce our reliance upon air travel. It is better for us to focus on family reunions and getting people in one place than it is to encourage people to come to Australia to live the so-called Australian dream while we continue to exploit the country that they come from. always said like if we had a actively permeable uh, migration program like I believe that we have a commitment and a duty of care for people who are being displaced especially our Pacific neighbours who are losing their home due to rising sea levels there's perhaps not a duty of care to have a movement of people that's based around propping the GDP for a narrow set of interests and to feed a housing speculative bubble. And let's not pretend for a moment that population growth doesn't impact existing and incoming migrants into Australia. It does. 
There are students as we speak living in tents inside of apartments. Mm. There is a legacy of exploited migrants in low-skilled occupations, you know, because they don't have the same access to welfare as um, people born or have citizenship do. And we're creating an underclass through this migration program. So many migrants live in severely overcrowded housing, which during my research is classified under the broader scope of homelessness. So, so many incoming migrants are disproportionately affected by the housing crisis. And this is all done not as a humanitarian favour, but to keep this bullshit economy growing. Well, exactly. I think it was the mayor of Western Sydney has basically said that we need to slow population growth because the largely migrant population of Western Sydney is already struggling with lack of infrastructure and all of the negative impacts of what happens when you have rapid population growth and the sprawl that comes with it without any pre-planning and infrastructure being put in up front. There's an interesting article in the ABC, and we'll put that link in the show notes too, about how um, largely migrant areas on the outer fringes are the most impacted. And in my uh, comedy show, I one of the things I said was that the Australian dream is the dream you have when you're falling asleep on your steering wheel on your two-hour-long commute from your outer suburban home to your job. <laughs> and that's got a barrel of laughs. Oh, no, it didn't really. On the last night, it got no laughs at all. I just got people stare at me. But we'll talk about that later. That's, that's, a, that's a good uh, teaser. A good teaser, for yes. What, for what one can expect later on in the programme. Yes. Is there anything else you'd like to add with regards to this issue? Yeah, look, the only thing I'd add as a discussion point is if the notion that we're going to continue solving the problem with more supply, we're going to run out of places we can supply. I mean, already towns in northern New South Wales and the interior of Australia along the coast are being impacted by rising seas, flooding, bushfires. And so if we continue new development, we're just going to exacerbate these problems and expose more people to the ever-increasing environmental disasters that come from climate change yeah exactly especially if sprawl continues which it definitely will under this current system and i would say that we can expect more pandemics and not less pandemics in future and as i hopefully we don't all have such a short memory that when we reflect on the lockdown, for those of us who did live in apartments or with restricted private area, it was really difficult, particularly if there wasn't ready access to public land. One of the legacies of neoliberalism is that it has eaten away at common land and public access land and made everything private. If we are going to be looking at high density living, then as as you said, that needs a complete reimagining 
of the urban planning landscape. So it's not only climate change proof and resource depletion proof, but future pandemic proof. Yeah, well, that's right. Well, Town Planning Rebellion is very much about densifying the so-called grey fields and mostly in the post-war suburbs, the middle suburbs, where there is still quite a lot of access to, to parks and parklands. Housing is predominantly single-storey post-war housing and there is an argument that if it was done well and properly some of that housing was removed and replaced with very well-designed medium-density preferably uh, modular housing that's made in a factory which saves on a lot of waste using things like um, recycled wood to create modern highly insulated weatherboard, low carbon, factory made, well designed, medium density housing that can be slotted into place to replace our most run down housing stock in the middle suburbs. There is a lot of potential for that. But in order to do that, it would require buying up large numbers of houses and a lot of people might not necessarily want their house bought up. And it would require a big organisation to do that. Now I think that's what the direction we should be going down while at the same time embracing the retro suburbia movement which is about retrofitting and improving our existing built stock and respecting its embodied carbon. But that's going to require, as I said before, that will require massive change in perspective that's just not going to happen under the current paradigm. But in a world where we change our approach to population and we enter a steady state system, it's possible that we might be able to do more of that innovative kind of planning, preserve our best housing stock and replace our worst. As you know, we know here in Albany there are so many run-down fibro asbestos houses. Do the community a service to safely remove those and replace them with some really nice medium density housing would be an asset, but it has to be done in a very intelligent way and our planning and development system is not built around intelligence, it's built around speculation and the demands of profit-driven concerns like the Property Council. But we can definitely accommodate more refugees and more people as long as it is driven by an understanding that we're working together in the world to create a steady state system where populations can over time stabilise and where our per capita consumption can reduce and we can create low carbon societies based around the idea of going from the egotistical nature of humanity now to what we are now to the ecotistical where we understand that we are part of nature and not, not against it. And this is a good segue, actually, Michael, into talking about your song, which we're going to play now, which is a fantastic song. It's called A Deer Caught in the Headlights. And you were actually inspired to write that song by looking at how very ecotistical people live and how their land is being destroyed. Could you talk a bit about that? Yeah, this was written, actually, in Pinjarra, um during a past life, and I was actually <laughs> involved as a student in, in the mining sector, which you have to be if you live in WA, um, tearing down the Jarrah forests. And during this time, I was watching an episode called Tribe, and it's about um, a guy who spends each 
episode with a different nomadic hunter-gatherer style tribe, um, pre-industrial tribe that still exists around the world. And every time there's at the end of the episode, you know, the march of civilization is coming across and we're losing our lands. And one that struck me was uh, this tribe in Malaysia who was so intertwined and interconnected with the forests. And I think the end of the episode, they're up on the top of the tree and they can see the palm plantations come in all directions. And we're like, well, this is our death right here. You know, we're gone. And so the song was inspired by that. And I suppose the first few lines are beyond the sprawl, beyond the blight, the neon light. And so I guess that's like a urban planning theme or yeah. the problems of too much sprawl. Both of our songs have the term sprawl in them. <laughs> Two songs that we've played today. <laughs> so, there's, yeah, a, there's a theme. It's thematic. Theme. But fantastic. A deer caught in the headlights. Beyond the sprawl, beyond the blight, the neon light, beyond the sea, under the trees. A secret garden We have to go a little further That they'll never find us here Can you hear the chainsaws near? You, you and me We need the dirt beneath our feet Need the green within our reach To think we're another race Darwin draws Your darling days are drawing near Can you hear the chainsaws near? Disillusionment I hear And when it's gone We'll float up high And when it's gone I hear your cry Kiss goodbye, divine. There is nowhere to run. There is nowhere to run. Like a deer caught in the headlights, 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 a deer caught.
dear caught in the headlights my dear she's caught in the headlights my dear she's caught in the headlights we play Welcome back, folks, to the Post-Growth Australia podcast. This is the housing crisis edition where Michael and myself talk about the housing crisis. Michael, from the perspective of the amazing briefing note that he co-wrote for Sustainable Population Australia, and from my perspective from Town Planning Rebellion, as someone who takes a deep interest in sustainable planning, and we've talked a bit about it. Um, I'm currently writing an article on the housing crisis from a town planning rebellion perspective. It hasn't been fully written yet, but by the time you hear this, it should have been published. So there will also be a link to that article in the show notes. And that article puts some of the issues forward that we've discussed, hopefully in a more succinct way. Um, so please read that and share it and discuss it and always feel free to contact either myself or Michael if you ever want to come up with any ideas or ask any questions or learn more about Sustainable Population Australia, Town Planning Rebellion or indeed holistic activism. And I suppose I ought to give a couple of thank yous for this uh, yes. briefing note. Um, the housing crisis is a population crisis. It can be found on the SPA website. It was co-written with Dr. Jane O'Sullivan, who has written many of our um, discussion papers and briefing notes in the past. And I interviewed her with Professor Ian Lowe, one of SPA's patrons, uh, after they co-wrote with Peter Cook, who also edited this briefing note. And um, took my initial draft into bigger and better directions. <laughs> better, not bigger directions. We're on a post-growth podcast. It's been an incredible journey. It's been great to put something like this out there. Like so much of what I do, when I look at the stats, it's been widely read, which is great, but rarely commented on. It's kind of like I feel really happy and really sad at the same time. Mm. Um, there has been some interest on South Australian ABC radio is really good. It's like the best of South Australia, best of ABC. That's good. Um, there's been some other community radio and we sent it to some community groups involved in residence action and or homeless support or rental crisis support and we have had a bit of response for that that's good to hear and in, there'll be a couple of meetings hopefully later this month with a couple of those organizations so that is a step forward it is a step forward and as we said earlier it is such an emotive subject talking about population it should be okay to have those conversations and we need to have those conversations because otherwise we will continue to compound issues like the housing crisis. And as I said before, the far right will eventually use population to suit their agenda. And their agenda is very, very different to ours because we are not anti-immigration. We are not anti 
multiculturalism. We are all about embracing a world that, that is diverse and where it's okay for populations to stabilise over time. All this business of writing um, briefing notes and reports mm. on something that's just utterly bleak as mm. a housing crisis. Yeah. I can't say I laughed the whole time I was writing, no. like all the research. No. It was kind of put me down quite a bit. And so I think with that in mind, it's brought me back to one of the original aims of setting up PGAP. And that is um, to bring a little bit of levity into the discussion, to make these things conversational and also, you know, if people laugh occasionally, as some, as some of the feedback to PGAP, people have said it's uh, sporadically funny, which is nice. As, as I probably said before, one of my idle podcast series is Crazy Town. Mm. Uh, uh, just between you and I and the listeners, I think yes. we might be having one of them on PGAP. We're going to be interview a podcaster. So we're going to be podcasters interviewing podcasters. How meta can you get? <laughs> that sounds a bit like a positive feedback loop. But, uh, <laughs> it's just it's just the side of the times. Now you have debuted a fringe comedy show. Oh yes, called the Boomer and the Doomer. Yes, and I did see it in Adelaide Thank on you the for first coming, two nights. And I personally do say I really enjoyed it and really hats off to you because stand-up comedy is one of the few things I haven't tried and I just have this complete mental psychological block that mm. just stops me from doing it. Mm. Yeah, I just thought we might spend a little bit of a while talking a bit about that. Okay, yeah. No, let's 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 talk about um, political comedy. Firstly, what inspired the Boomer and the Doomer? How did it form? Well, I was looking for new ways of communicating the issues that are important to me, which is around sustainable town planning and holistic activism and degrowth or post-growth and steady state living. And I realised that comedy is a good way in. And also I needed to do something funny because, as you said before, the, the stuff that we talk about is, is pretty heavy and hard, especially when you are talking about um, issues like population and food ethics, veganism, you know, it's... Um, Hilarious, it, but... It's, you know, I'm not complaining. I'm, I'm, you know, relatively very lucky to be able to, to talk about and work in areas that I'm passionate about. But, you know, I'm in a different world. I, I would be um, planting trees and rewilding and, yeah, things that I really love. But that's okay. But so, yeah, comedy for me was a, a good outlet, but also a good opportunity to try and find new audiences for talking about really pertinent issues. I tried a little bit of stand-up comedy in Adelaide a couple of years ago. And, and you won a competition? I did, I did. I mean, to be fair, I mean, a lot of people in the audience were people I knew, and <laughs> it was an audience-fighted thing. So, yeah, so that was good. Um... And I have a friend whose stage name is Eric Tinker, who is a bit of a farcical performer in Adelaide. He does a lot of farcical comedy. And he had this rap called MC Boomer as part of his routine. 
because I used to joke about him being a boomer. We'd, you know, we'd, we'd joke with each other. He'd call me a bit of a hippie and I'd say he was a typical boomer, you know. And um, he decided to sort of um, make a comedy thing out of it and he did his MC Boomer rap. And I thought, oh, that's a really good rap. That's really good. You should mm. definitely do that. And um, I thought, well, let's do a show together. You know, I can be the, the, the doomer, the depressed we're all going to die and you can be the kind of optimistic, little bit narcissistic boomer. We can play off against each other and see if if we can find some common ground at the end and do something a bit more holistic activism, so to speak. So that was the... Uh, so that's what led to the show. Yeah, there were many jokes in that set I appreciated. There was an MMT joke, which uh, we did... Debut on air with, we did. with Gabrielle Bond in the interview, so a good excuse to um, re-listen to that That's episode. Right. And um, one of the things that I always reflect on has been really hilarious were your experiences on the train. Yes. Which was almost like a field research. It, it was, because I took the train from Perth to Adelaide. I saved up my pennies for many months. And decided to, to do the train because I am committed to trying to keep my carbon footprint as low as possible. It's ridiculously expensive and you can only go gold class now. So it's not something I'm going to be able to do too often. But it was ironic because I was the youngest on the train by about 25 years, I think. And a large number of people on the train happened to be sort of baby boomers. And, and it, was, it was a mixture of, I got a lot of... A nice thing said to me, and I got a bit of abuse thrown at me. There was one guy who said to me, what do you do for a living? And I said, oh, well, I'm a sort of journalist of sorts. And he said, do you work for Sky News? And I went, oh, no, 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 I don't work for Sky News. Don't know, I don't want you. And he looked at me, said, oh, my God, he said, you're not left wing, are you? <laughs> and I said to him, <laughs> I said, well, where is that thought? Yeah. I said, well, I'm, I'm trying to sort of not get caught up on the whole left-wing, right-wing thing. There's a climate and ecological emergency. We need to find our common ground. We need to work together. He said, oh, my God, you're worse. You're one of those soft cocks. So I'll add that to the list of things I've been called. So, I mean, so this that. is a lesson to all of us. If you don't take sides on the political divide, yeah. then you have erectile dysfunction. Is, is that... Apparently so, apparently so. Well, yeah. well, there's a have to do a correlation study on that. Well, quite. So that was that was funny. I thought, oh, well, I'll, I'll use that. And it was also kind of nice as well because there was some people sort of doting on me a bit. You have my toast, dear. You're a growing lad. And it's like, oh, you called me a growing lad. I haven't been called a growing lad for 25 <laughs> years either, you know. And it's, it's like all relative. But, you know, I, when I got on the train, I thought, oh, you know... It, we're all white. It's very, very white. There's uh, this train journey does not reflect the ethnic diversity of uh, modern Australia by any means, or the generation diversity, or the generational <laughs> diversity. And I, I said on the stand-up, I said, you know, I, I was blinded by the whiteness so much I thought we were on a ghost train. And <laughs> on the last night, again, just no one laughed. It was just like the stunned silence. I thought, oh god, okay, the ghost train joke's not going to work, you know, and it. it it's just so funny because some nights um, people really connected and laughed and, and other nights they didn't. And as someone who's not very experienced at comedy, I found it quite difficult to navigate the more hostile audiences, you know. This is why I took up podcasting mm. because I don't know 
if the listener is laughing or not at my jokes. No. So I can just pretend that they are. The listener could be sat glaring <laughs> with crossed arms <laughs> and you, you'd never know. Or they might be rolling around laughing. Look, I was there on the first two nights and they were very well received. So I was delighted when um, you said you might continue with it again, perhaps even for Perth Fringe next year. I'd like to because quite a lot of effort went into it and I think it'll be much better the next time we do it um, because I've made it better I've worked I've worked out which bits work and which bits don't so it's sharper now and if Eric Tinker is willing I would be quite happy to do it at the Perth Fringe next year and see how it goes um, it's always good to start on an Adelaide audience and then move on to a Perth audience Yes, and there's a little bit of a philosophical question that I have for you. Yes. And one is the role that comedy can play in otherwise, I don't know, highbrow depressing <laughs> subjects because we did see another comedian. We did. A Humanity's Last Hope show, a UK comedian at the Adelaide Fringe. And from what I observed was that in order for her to make a show that was comedy based, I observed a lot of the tropes of the general comedy world, like a lot of um, pop culture references and sexual references and things mm. like that, which you largely um, avoided at your, sh your show, and huge credit to you for that. I mean, um, I think Eric <laughs> put a few pop culture and sexual references there to Yeah, make he was there as it, the but... counterbalance because my comedy was quite sort of like a, a slightly witty TED talk. And Derek's, or Eric Tinker's, should I say, was very much farcical, silly songs and play on words, and and which is great. Um, and the two were there to sort of act as a sort of counterbalance, so to speak. Well, I made a joke about um, carbon offsetting and the stupidity and futility of that. You know, like you'll have property developers who will chop down trees or clear clear bush and they will offset it by promising not to clear some other bush and it's like going up to someone and saying I'm going to punch you really hard in the face but I'm going to offset that by promising not to punch that person over there <laughs> <laughs> so that's the kind of humor it was you know and and, it's, and so you know not everyone was was in the mood for that kind of humor I guess but with that counterbalanced with like um you know, Eric Tinker's humour singing about, you know, Elton John in the lettuce aisle saying, I don't want lettuce because I'm a rocket man, you know, that kind of thing. Kind of the idea was that, you know, something, somehow it would be kind of postmodern and it would all work. And, and at the end, we kind of found some common ground. If you are in Perth for the Fringe and it's happening, um, yeah, I, I, I would love you to come along. And um, yeah, who knows what will happen. <laughs> it was an absolute delight to watch and it's something that's um, got me thinking about you know the place of comedy mm. in PGAP I've been tempted on a couple of occasions to try to push PGAP in a more comedic territory but uh, I feel that being wryly observational and allowing 
you know, the odd jokes to come here mm. and there um, is feels a little bit less of a commitment or responsibility. Trying to bring comedy in wherever you can is is good. Um, I think you do do a good job. Yeah, so, so oscillate between the tears and the laughs. Oscillate between the tears and the laughs. Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's it. And I there am... needs to be a fringe category for that. It like, does. It's not a comedy, it's an oscillation. Well, that's, that's, that's pretty much what I was doing with the Boomer and the Doomer. It was an oscillation between laughing at, at farcical humour and um, sort of seeing the, the farce that is modern day society with... Um, Issues like carbon offsetting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah. I mean, it's a lot more difficult to make that funny than, you know, a self-deprecating masturbation joke or something. So. Yeah. Well, I'm not... I, I feel as though with the fact that the climate emergency is only intensifying, I feel personally as though it would be a little indulgent to to do anything that doesn't come back to trying to tackle this huge crisis that humanity is facing. Um, and it's good because it enabled Eric Tinker's comedy to also play a role in that as well, which I think he, he was happy about. So, And um, my final reflection of this is, um, you know, one of the reasons why we do the podcasts and I, I would assume one of the reasons why, you, you know, the comedy shows in the fringe is that we need to create our own media because it's not like, um, you know, the progressive mainstream, progressive mainstream media is calling us on the phone and saying, please come to the studios for an interview. No, that's so, right. I mean, even The Guardian, I've lost a lot of faith in The Guardian. They, they had an article the other day basically saying that we should relax heritage laws in Melbourne to allow more development, which will end urban sprawl, which is just um, hugely problematic. The fact that articles like that are being published and more nuanced articles and um have just generally been ignored. Yeah, generally yeah. ignored, yeah. And what has given me a glimmer of hopefully not false hope, but <laughs> of, you know, independent media can be a way forward is that, you know, you had a full room on each of your nights of your performance. You know, yeah. pe people it was a small came. room, but it was a full one. People ne nevertheless came. It did come, yeah. And, you know, there was... The renter crowd only went so far, and yeah. the, the wider public answered the call. And they did, and there was a lot of other shows on as well, competing shows. So many other shows, and there are so many other podcasts, but mm. um, PGAP has had our record number of listens in April. Fantastic news. We've exceeded the previous record. It's so good to hear. Yes, yeah, so yeah. Yeah. it's it kind of a, it gives me a signal that, doing it ourselves um, can sometimes pay off. Absolutely, yeah, we, we have to, yeah. And um, let's keep doing it. Fantastic. Well, I think this is a fantastic way to end things. On a, on a yay. On a yay note. Yeah, on a yay. Until the next time, folks. Until then. <laughs>